Hi, thanks for joining us this week on Menlo Church Online. We are a place where everyone's welcome, nobody's perfect, and anything is possible. We are a community of people who believe in God and truly believe that he will do things in the Bay Area. So our hope this week is that you would be able to connect with him and hear what God has to tell you. So enjoy the rest of this message. Welcome and hello to everybody joining us from all of our campuses, everybody joining us online. I am so glad you are here today. We're talking about something exciting, but we're also talking about something that's scary. So I thought we might start by hearing a story from my life about a time I was scared. I'd just been invited into a big new opportunity at a previous church. I was going to be overseeing multiple ministry opportunities in addition to the student ministry. It was going to be a lot more responsibility and like a lot of emails. And you might be thinking, yeah, emails, more emails, terrifying. That's not the scary part. Now, part of the backstory here has to do with my work style, which is somewhere between high energy and low-grade mania. I like to think of myself as bubbly, but like mm, in a manly way. And so I was all set to throw a lot of energy into this new job opportunity when this happened. That's my daughter, Margot. She's now four years old. And a few weeks after she was born, I realized that I was tired, like really, really tired. And I wasn't surprised to be tired. That's a normal part of parenting. I was surprised at how much being tired scared me. When I was that tired, I couldn't prove myself in this new job opportunity. I couldn't compete. I couldn't perform. I couldn't demonstrate my value. I was scared to slow down. I was scared to ask for help. I was scared to be that tired. I was scared to reach and face my limits. I was scared to fall behind. Because if I fell behind at work, I might fall behind in life. And if I fell behind in life, my family might fall behind. And if my family fell behind, we might never, ever catch up. I was scared to rest. And part of what was failing me in this time of my life was my philosophy of work. Probably many of you go to work every day under the same philosophy of work that I was at the time. At the time, my philosophy of work was work like it is up to me. Pray like it's up to God. And I think I speak for many of us when I say we never make it past the semicolon. We work under the anxiety-provoking misbelief that at work, it's all up to us. And so this means that we cannot rest. How could I rest if it was all up to me? So the way we approach work keeps us from ever resting. And it's not just work, it's fun things too. There's always been a spirit whispering into the ear of America, you need more. More land, more expansion, more money, more power, more square footage, more horsepower, more up, more to the right, more vacation, more music, more TV, on demand, on your phone, more podcasts. Podcasts when you wake up, podcasts when you eat breakfast, podcasts when you work out, podcasts in the shower at twice the speed because you need more. Maybe for you that's not the list. Probably you have your own list of good stuff that you feel you need more of. There might, be a not, there might not be enough good stuff on your list, but something is whispering to us, get more of the good stuff. We've got a deep fear that there won't be a good, enough good stuff in our life. Fear of missing out is the sensation that something important is happening, and if we miss it, we will regret it for the rest of our lives. And 50% of us report the regular sensation that we are missing out. 
And that's why we rush, even when we're having fun. Last summer, my family went to Disneyland, and our guidebook said, show up at 8 a.m., and when the gates open, run. You are in a literal foot race to Peter Pan. It's the best ride in the park. It's got the longest wait line. You might want to wear athletic clothing. The logic is that if you don't hurry, you won't experience enough to be satisfied. We carry this deep fear that there is no satisfaction for us. We're afraid there isn't enough good stuff to go around. And these twin misbeliefs that at work it's up to me, and when I'm having fun there might not be enough good stuff to go around, mean that we can never, ever rest. Before the Bible talks about love, before the Bible talks about forgiveness, before the Bible talks about prayer, it talks about rest. As the second chapter of the Bible opens, Genesis chapter 2 says, God saw that his creation was good and he rests. And we're left to wonder, is God tired or just lazy? Hang on to that thought for later that God rested. We'll get back to it. Jesus, as it turns out, was a Sabbath person. Someone once asked Dallas Willard what was the one word he would use to describe Jesus. And after thinking about it, Dallas reportedly said the one word to describe Jesus is relaxed. Jesus moved at a Sabbath pace. He thought Sabbath thoughts. He spoke Sabbath words. He was a Sabbath person. We in the Silicon Valley are not Sabbath people. Now, there's no end to studies about how overworked and overstimulated and underrested we are. One researcher summarized the research by saying that a confluence of devices and information and family life and work pressure have come together to create a time famine. Are you hungry for more time? Another summarized the research by simply saying that we are having a widespread societal panic attack. Now, the humble perspective of this sermon is that you need to rest, practice the Sabbath. And I hope that at the end of this sermon, you can consider Sabbath practices and integrating them into your life as a live option to nurture your connection with Jesus and live a better life. Now, I say all of this not as someone who is well-rested. I'm not saying, come and join me. The Sabbath water is great. I say this as a tired and horrible sinner who has one of these at home. That's my son, Frankie, and he's so cute when he's not biting me. So I speak not only as a tired parent with a full-time job, but I also speak as someone who has heard the whisper of getting more of the good stuff. Something whispers to me also, you need more. And typically when I have heard that whisper in my life, I say to it, yes, give me more. Podcast in the shower, whatever it takes to cram more of the good stuff into my life. That's typically how I've done it. I am very guilty of not Sabbathing. Turns out that the Bible has a lot to say about this action called Sabbathing. Let's take a look. The Bible mentions love 310 times. That's a major theme, really important thing in the Bible. The Bible mentions the kingdom of God 162 times. That's probably the major theme in the preaching of Jesus. But the Bible mentions rest 496 times, and it mentions Sabbath 172 times for a grand total of 668 times. And in the course of this sermon, I just want to take a look at a few of the 668 passages that talk about rest. 
In Matthew chapter 11, Jesus says this, Come to me, all you who are weary and carrying heavy burdens, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and humble in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. A few years ago, we had an exercise here at church where we were given bits of paper with random scripture verses on it, and Katie pulled this verse, my wife pulled this verse off the pile, and as tired parents, this spoke deeply to us. That actual piece of paper still hangs in my kitchen, singed by a grease fire I once started. This is a yoke right here. This is a mechanical bit of machinery uh, designed to keep these two cows pulling in the same direction. Do you ever notice how you can't figure out what a cow is thinking by the look on its face? Here we have a yoke. It keeps these two cows pulling in the same direction so as to magnify their power. And a yoke was a common metaphor in the ancient world for a rabbi's body of teaching. All of the teachings of a rabbi would be called their yoke. All rabbis had a yoke. It was a standard term for their set of commands. So it's no surprise that Jesus has a yoke. The question is, why was Jesus' yoke easy? Dallas Willard suggests that we should imagine ourselves strapped into one of these simple wooden machines We are on one side, and Jesus is strapped into the other side. Things are hard or maybe even impossible by ourselves, but when we're pulling in the same direction as Jesus, then Jesus is providing all the power. He carries all the burdens. And suddenly this comes easy, and we are simply along for the ride. Now this image of being yoked with Jesus, of him carrying the burdens, this is crucial for the way that we understand our work, our jobs, where you work, what your career is. This equal yoke is important for you to understand your career path. We must cultivate an awareness that in our work life, Jesus is there working alongside you. My father's a lawyer, and I've always known that he secretly harbored this ambition that I too might become a lawyer. And in this paradigm, our law firm would be Stefan and Son and God, and everyone would settle out of court. Now, this idea that Jesus is working alongside us, providing the necessary power for things, is really important as we approach the Sabbath. My first thought, my very first thought, as I think about rest or Sabbath, is, oh great, one more thing to feel guilty about. So maybe for you and me, a good place to start with thinking about the Sabbath is simply to ask Jesus, will you help me? Jesus, will you help me learn how to rest? Will you teach me what rest is really like? Now, I used to think that this verse meant that if I was stressed and tired and I stopped in the middle of what I was doing and I prayed that God would give me more energy. Now, that's a good thing to do, but it's not what this passage says. It says not that God will give you energy. It says that God will give you rest. Literally in the Greek, Jesus says, I will rest you. Regular rest of body, mind, and soul are simply part of following Jesus. Regular rest, it turns out, is also a way more productive way to live. You might have seen that recent study that showed a four-day work week improves or might improve productivity up to 40%. So, on behalf of Menlo Church elders, take Monday off. Just don't even go in. If you're motivated and diligent, there's a truth about rest here. If you do less, you will get more out of it. This is true in our work life where we labor under the unhelpful idea that it's all up to us. But it's also true in our private lives when we're just having fun, where we think there isn't enough of the good stuff and I'm going to miss out on it. 
I just deeply fear missing out. Anytime I'm having fun, there's a hurried pace to it. And this is why Dallas says that to rest is a great act of faith. I can miss out on things because Christ really is enough for me. I don't have to be afraid of missing out because Jesus meets my needs. And that in truth, Jesus is the only thing that ever satisfied me. And what he provides in my life will really truly be enough. This is the mindset that helps us to rest. To rest like this is to enter into the reality that the psalmist captured when he said, the Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. In Jesus, I lack nothing. I have enough. And this is where we need to begin as we arrange even our schedules, even our plans for having fun, even our work life needs to begin right here. Christians are called to embrace the spiritual practice of missing out. So rest is good and it's part of following Jesus, but the fact that God rests suggests to us that rest isn't primarily about eliminating fatigue and getting more energy. Let's take a look at a passage where God rests. In Genesis 1 and 2, we read, God saw everything that he made, and indeed, it was very good. And thus, the heavens and the earth were finished in all their multitude. And on the seventh day, God finished the work that he'd done, and he rested on the seventh day from all the work that he'd done. So God blessed the seventh day and made it holy, because on it, God rested from all the work that he'd done in creation. God works hard for six straight days. The Bible thinks that work is really good. There were other ancient religions where the gods did nothing but play and leisure. They created humans to bring food and wine to the gods so that the gods would never, ever have to work. But the God that we know in the Bible is a type of God who gets down on his hands and knees and goes to work. Work is a way that we are like God. In the view of the ancient rabbis, if your work wasn't fundamentally exploitative, then it was dignified and it was important because it was the type of thing that God would be doing if he were you. And as we said earlier, the best way to go to work is to imagine that Jesus is already there waiting to partner with you. Partner with Jesus in your work. Work is good. And it's important to work hard for six, six days because otherwise you'll feel super guilty when we get to the Sabbath part. So work really hard, that's really good. So God sees that his work is indeed very good and he rests. Ancient rabbis tell us that this is not an act of God collapsing into the heavenly couch in exhaustion, but instead God's rest is an act of celebration and enjoyment. Two other things that God does in this passage suggest that this is indeed the idea. God's rest is celebratory and joyful. The first action that God does in addition to creating the world is that he blesses the Sabbath. He blesses it. Now, the other things that God blesses in this passage are humans and animals. And he blesses humans and animals so that they might be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. There's something procreative and life-giving to this blessing. For the Sabbath to be blessed means that it's supposed to be life-giving to us. Researchers have studied people groups who are militant about the Sabbath and found that for people who practice the Sabbath every week, their whole lives, they live 10 years longer than the rest of us. 10 years. It's literally life-giving to us. 
Now, the other thing that God does in this passage is that he makes the Sabbath holy. For something to be holy, it means that it is dedicated to God. It is part of worship. It is worshipful. And the Sabbath isn't worshipful in the narrow sense of singing songs in church or listening to mediocre sermons. That's good, too. The Sabbath is worshipful in this broad, whole-of-life sense. Your whole life can be worshipped. John Mark Cormer is a pastor in Portland, and he's written a fantastic book on Sabbath and rest called The Ruthless Elimination of Hurry. And he says that Sabbath as worship means this. Here we mean worship in the wide, holistic sense of the word. Expand your list of spiritual disciplines to include eating a burrito on the patio or drinking a bottle of wine with your friends over a lazy, long dinner or walking on the beach with your lover or best friend. Worship is anything to index your heart towards gratitude and the reality of God's goodness. Now, if anything in that quote was offensive, remember he's from Portland. So the Sabbath is about expressing this deep gratitude and doing something life-giving. The Sabbath is supposed to make you feel alive and free. A word that the rabbis settled on to capture this Sabbath spirit is delight. The Sabbath is a day of delight. Now, a historical problem with the Sabbath is what you actually do or don't do. Doing something that is life-giving and expressing gratitude, these are actually huge, broad, and flexible categories. It's crucial not to get too rigid about it. That's not delight. That's not a day of delight. Now, there are pages and pages of rigid conversation about what you can and can't do on the Sabbath. I'm sure you can guess. But one of them I found really, really helpful. Mid-century rabbis were suddenly flooded with inquiries about a new thing called television and its later variations. And the questions were super complicated. If I set the channel before the Sabbath and then I don't touch it or the remote until after the Sabbath, have I violated the Sabbath? And that was even like before Netflix. You could stream nothing when that question was posed. And this, of course, misses the entire point of the Sabbath. The point isn't what you can or can't do. The point is to do something that's life-giving. So TV and video games and all of that, they aren't wrong. They just aren't life-giving and therefore aren't the biblical kind of rest. We've confused rest with entertainment. No one, no one ever felt refreshed and alive after watching two straight seasons of Gilmore Girls. No one. So let's say something crazy happens and you hear this sermon and you think, I want to experiment with the Sabbath. What is it that you might do or not do? What worshipful, gratitude-inducing, life-giving thing might you do on the Sabbath? Dan Allender, in his book, The Sabbath, put it this way. The Sabbath is an invitation to enter delight. Sabbath is a holy time where we feast, play, dance, have sex, sing, laugh, tell stories, read, paint, walk, and watch creation in all of its fullness. It's crucial to remember that Sabbath is a verb, therefore it is way more of an art form than it is a prescription. John Mark Cormer said it took his family of five a few years of trial and error to find their rhythm. For their Sabbath, they've adopted the standard traditional time slot, Friday night at 5 p.m.-ish to Saturday at 5 p.m.-ish. But over time, they've developed their own practices. Here's what they do. He writes, just before sunset on Friday, we finish up all of our to-do lists and homework and grocery shopping and responsibilities. We power down our devices and put them in a box in the closet, and we gather around the table as the family. Then we open a bottle of wine, we light some candles, we read a psalm, and we pray, and then we feast 
for 24 hours. After the Sabbath dinner, we bake a giant cookie in a cast iron pan, a full square foot of chocolate yumminess, and then we dump a full gallon of ice cream on the top. We let it melt a little. And then we eat the whole thing as a family right out of the pan. It's a symbolic nod to our unity as a family and our love of carbohydrates. And as we indulge, we share what we are grateful for that week. And then we sleep in on Saturday morning, we drink coffee, we read our Bibles, we pray some more, we spend time together, we walk to the park or we make a fire, we get lost in great novels, we cuddle and we nap. And then he writes, about midday on Saturday, something weird happens to me. I feel free. And if that sounds overwhelming, that's okay. He ratchets up the expectations a little more by saying, whatever you do, whatever expectations you put on the Sabbath, it's very important to make it special, like a holiday, like Thanksgiving or Christmas, but without the political arguments. Rabbis through history have said, prepare for the Sabbath like it is a wedding. And to me, that sounds exhausting. Rabbi Greenberg, who counseled a lot of secular Jews who were rediscovering their faith, said it's important for people to try the Sabbath in experimental ways, to grow into it in stages. He said, maybe at first, just start with an hour on Friday night and then expand it through the evening. Maybe later add Saturday morning. Or maybe he says, do it once a month, just once a month. Or maybe simply begin each weekend with family dinner and prayers of gratitude. I want you to experiment with this this year. My wife and I have already decided that we are going to. But whatever you do, do something that even if only for a moment, radically shifts your perspective. The power to shift your perspective is the true power of the Sabbath. To Sabbath is the fourth of the Ten Commandments. It's the only spiritual discipline that makes the big list. And it gets by far the longest explanation of any of the other commandments. And in Deuteronomy's version of the Ten Commandments, God's explanation for the Sabbath is this. Remember that you were slaves in Egypt and that the Lord your God brought you out of there with a mighty hand and an outstretched arm. Therefore, the Lord God commanded you to keep the Sabbath. Now, I used to think that this passage meant, I brought you into this world, now I can bring you out of it. Like, I brought you out of Egypt, do what I say. But I've come to understand that Egypt represents not only a place where the Hebrews were slaves, but a whole culture and economy, a way of life. Egypt was a rapacious and greedy empire where the work never ended and no one was ever satisfied. It was an ancient world defined by the inescapable desire for more. And so the Israelites, only recently rescued from this system, could not understand themselves in any other way than as slaves to more. So the command to Sabbath is really a command to understand ourselves differently. We don't serve the gods of more in a world where no one can ever be as satisfied and there's never, ever enough. We serve a true God. For us, we've made a commitment that Christ will be enough for us. So we can joyfully take a break from getting more. We can, if we want to, and with Jesus' help, understand ourselves not as fast-paced consumers and producers, but as unhurried enjoyers. We can be, with Jesus' help, people who take time to delight in life. 
That's God's hope for you. To close, one final passage. In Leviticus 25, the life-giving tradition of the Sabbath is expanded to not only be a day of delight each week, but every seven years, a year of delight, a full year of Sabbath, and then every 49 years, what the Bible calls a year of jubilee, like a mega Sabbath where the land is given back to its original owner, all slaves are freed and all the debts are canceled. Could you imagine how our world would be destroyed by this practice? Can you imagine how the world would have been transformed if the Hebrews had done this regularly? Historians tell us that this year of Jubilee probably never really happened. God commanded it, and the people simply never followed the command. And as I've thought about this, I always imagine how God must feel. That he designed a powerful, life-changing gift that humans never, ever enjoyed this year of Jubilee. This huge gift that would have transformed human society and relationships remains still wrapped and under the tree. And for us in our world, Sabbath is the same way. This year, open the gift. Experiment with the Sabbath. Try resting in this way that God invites us to, this life-giving, grateful way. And now, in true Sabbath spirit, and for the first time in my preaching career, I'm going to end a sermon early by one minute. Thank you for joining us this week on Menlo Church Online. Our hope this week is that this message both inspired you and helped you connect to God better. We also hope that you have several questions coming out of this week. And so if that's the case, please shoot us a note at menlo.church. And we hope to see you next week.